On today's episode, we're going to be circling back, circling back to the households of Phi. And uh, we're doing a longitudinal study where we have followed a cohort, several individuals from all walks of life, and we're tracking them at various stages on their journey to financial independence. And we're pairing them with various experts that can help them as they're going through some of these unique life situations that are mirrored by large percentages of our audience. And today we are going to be highlighting and featuring uh, Matt and Megan. Now we had them on episode 221, where we introduced their original voicemail 245, where we took a look at tax planning for an international couple. And then now as a dual military couple, this episode titled transition planning from a military career on the path to financial independence with Doug Nordman. We have Doug Norman on the show today. He's going to be kind of helping them walk through this point that I think so many people, so many military families in our community find themselves. You're 10 years in, you're 15 years in, you're starting to think about what are the considerations as I transition out. I cannot begin to express to you the incredible value that is contained in this interview for individuals that are either in this position or know someone that is, this is going to be an episode you're going to want to listen to. You're going to listen to it again, and you're going to want to share it with friends and family. So with that, welcome to the ultimate crowdsource personal finance show. This is Choose FI. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. All right, guys. So as I referenced, titled the episode, Transition Planning from a Military Career for Individuals on the Path to Financial Independence. And uh, to help me with this, to help me introduce or set up this episode, I have my uh, good buddy, Brad, here today. How you doing, buddy? Hey, Jonathan. I am doing quite well. Yeah, this episode is chock full of information, right? And like you said, this is applicable to a large percentage of our audience, right? We have a huge number of people in the military. We have a huge number of people who are in public service jobs that have a pension, I think this is going to be really, really great information and a mindset for those people. So I'm, I'm fascinated to see what the feedback is on this and, and a huge thanks obviously to Doug Nordman. So Doug, we know is from the military guide and he's also the author of raising your money savvy family for next generation financial independence, which of course you could find at choose which is great. And uh, yeah, Doug was just so generous with his time. And Jonathan, there were a bunch of real takeaways here for me. So I found it fascinating that Doug said to Matt and Megan, you're going to end up with more money than you really need, right? He talked about the military pension and he talked about having that while following the path to FI, right? He talked about those lottery tickets, that having a military pension or any pension is akin to having multiple lottery tickets, especially when you're following the path to five, when you're saving money, when you're living below your means, because especially in the case of military, you have healthcare and you have this inflation fighting pension. Plus, I know Matt and Megan talked about they wanted to be at five even without their pensions, even without considering their pensions. So, I mean, they're going to be three X five. I mean, it's it's remarkable. 
Well, you know, I think certainly they're going to be breaking down all these points, but I think what you're saying is there's a couple things to watch out for here. I mean, really just so people start taking notes when they get to a couple of things. I want people to really pay attention to what Doug describes as the lottery ticket that like you just pointed out, but what is the lottery tickets that you possess and how many of them do you really need to take off in order to truly crush this game? If you're on the path to financial independence, another thing where they're weighing in on is how scared should individuals be of healthcare in the United States if they first were a part of, you know, they, they did their time in the military. Another way, so really that answer is incredibly valuable for people. I think it's going to provide a lot of security. Another one that they talk about, and Brad, this one was huge. I'm getting out of the military. I'm sitting with this military inferiority complex, like, can I, am I qualified to do anything outside of the military? Um, that's what Doug called it. And the individual, you know, Matt in this case is saying, you know, maybe I need to go back to college, get another degree. I want people to really pay attention to what Doug said about individuals that are trying to have this fear. Do I need to go back to college? That is critical. And I think Doug was dropping some wisdom bombs there. So with that, that, and so much more, we're going to kick this thing off. Huge thanks to Doug Norman, the military guide and co-author of raising the money savvy family, next generation financial independence. You'll see it's all tied together. Let me give you a little of my background. You might already know some of this, but I'll repeat it just in case you haven't already heard it. But my my wife and I, Marge and I, are both dual military, and we thought it was hard enough being in the same countries, same Navy. I did 20 years of active duty, and she did almost 20 years of active duty. And then she got that unrefusable offer from the assignment officer, and she left active duty for the reserves and finished her career there. Our daughter also joined the Navy on an ROTC scholarship, and then she met and married another Naval officer. This was not my idea to create a family (laughs) business. Yeah, you you guys have been warned, Um, but uh, they're going through the same co-location issues. And so what we had to do in the 80s and 90s, they're replicating in the 2020 era. And so uh, I talk with a lot of dual military couples. One theme I'll bring up right now at the very beginning of this is that it's such a small demographic, right, as you're aware, that uh, nobody really has taken any time to study dual military couples or or how this looks for career and family, let alone for finances. Of the couple of dozen uh, military couples I've seen over the years, probably over the last 20 years, I've probably seen 30 or 40 of them. If you get even just one pension among the two of you, even just that one annuity income for the rest of your life, you'll probably have more money than you need for the rest of your life just because of the pension and healthcare. That's the single unifying theme I've seen among all the couples, all the dual military couples that I've talked with over the years. And so if I seem really optimistic and, and really you know happy, like, hey, this is all going to work out, that's where that is coming from now. Mm. 30, 30, 40 people, I can't, I can't make a statistical study out of that. But I can tell you that if you've got lifetime annuity income and healthcare benefits, that even if you're roaming the world, things are probably still going to work out just fine. Well, thanks very much. That's, that's, <laughs> that, that definitely helps out. I mean, it's hard not to be positive when you're looking at the numbers, honestly. Good, good. <laughs> yeah, a good I sign. Mean, when, when we started on the FI journey, I personally didn't know an awful lot about the retirement plans of the US Navy and they are a hell of a lot more simple than what we have to go through for our pensions. Well, I am, I am sorry to hear you say that because I've been blogging for 10 years just because of how complicated the military pay and compensation system is over here. 
<laughs> I mean, I could draw an entire graph on the wall and with numbers going everywhere. And, you know, it depends on if how many blue moons you worked on in the Royal Navy and if you served a third of a day at sea. And Oh, it's absolutely ridiculous. How You're going to have to actually go into that because I think if you keep saying, oh, our retirement system is so complicated, Brad and Jonathan are really going to want to know. Like they mentioned that. They're very curious now. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to sit down. We get given a booklet when we join the uh, Royal Navy or Royal Air Force or the Army in the UK, okay. and the pension advice, which has changed three times in quite short space of time, really. Okay. The whole pension system, and each time they give you a rather large booklet, which is completely incomprehensible to the average person <laughs> who joins the military. And so, so I wouldn't say it was the reason why any person really joins the military. It's kind of something that you put in the bottom of a drawer and you you pull out later on you go oh well that's good i get this at the end of, of this whole stint in the armed forces or whatever so mm, it's a bit difficult and it's even harder because i feel like i've almost become an expert amongst some of my compatriots at work only to fall down at the first hurdle of any kind of questioning really under pressure uh, under under spousal pressure from answering her questions yes well, well yeah or, 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 i have yeah. no idea how this works so needless to say i'm just okay like in my head i'm like we're gonna go by and i'm only actually considering my pension so anything we do get from the royal navy will just be a nice added bonus yeah i think that's how i'm seeing it at the moment is kind of a bonus and we're actually working towards i think a more generalistic fire in terms of we would like our investments to add up to fire and then the pensions and whatnot are just in addition to that to be able to either add more comfort or something for us to fall back onto in harder times as we're already going through at the moment. You're already most of the way through your careers, if I remember correctly. In fact, Matt, are you already retired from the Royal Navy? Or no, so, so I'm about 11, I'm 11 and a half years in to my okay. career at the moment. And if you want the full-blown, I guess, uh, an equivalent yeah. kind of pension. It's around about 20 years in, in right. our Navy as well. But we, whereas it's an all-or-nothing system, or used to be an all-or-nothing system for the U.S. Navy, for us, it's every year that you work, you will get something further down something. the line. Yes, yes. I remember that from hearing it from other people. And Megan, it sounds to me like you're at that point where everybody says, well, I've come this far. I might as well just stick around for the next five years. Uh, Is it I still five just years? hit my 15-year mark in July. So I did my first 10 years enlisted. And so in order to retire with my officer, uh, obviously I have to do 10 full years commission. So my timing just happened to work out perfectly that I hit my 10 year mark and then the following month I had my commissioning. So, but because I did seem the Admiral after 2009, I have to actually do the two years that I spent at the NROTC unit in San Diego, um, I have to do those in addition. So I'll actually have to do 22 years before I'll be eligible for retirement. So you're going to, hypothetically, you're going to go to 22 years and then you'll be eligible to retire on an active duty pension. <laughs> is that, yes. is that the, okay. uh, but I mean, right now I actually just last year, um, well, earlier this year it was January. I just switched designators. So I went from being a pilot to being an HR officer. So now okay. that I have a new career track that I'm really, really enjoying and loving, who knows, I might want to do 30. <laughs> no, I, I, I can understand that. And that might make it a little easier for co-location for you to find, you know, large parts of the country where you guys could hypothetically be stationed together. I don't know if that's ever going to work, but uh, uh, I understand the, the challenges in that. One thing I tell everyone is that if you're in the military and you have a chance of getting either an active duty pension or a reserve pension or whatever the equivalent is for, for the Royal Navy, 
you've got four lottery tickets and you really only need one of them to pay off. And by that, I mean, you'll solve the healthcare problem. You'll have inflation fighting life annuity, even with just one pension that starts in when you're older in your sixties and everything else will come from savings, from your savings, from your investments. And it's the equivalent of a backup to social security. Really? You already know, Megan, that someday you're going to probably be drawing social security and you probably haven't put much thought into that, but way back at the end of your earning years, you've got that pension, that, that annuity coming in from social security. And if you have one more military pension in addition to that, then that generally takes care of any errors or inaccuracies or oversights in your financial independence planning. So you might find out that if you both stick around for the equivalent of an active duty pension, that not only are do you have more money than you need, but you've way overshot the mark. And if you enjoy what you're doing, if, if your military careers are challenging and fulfilling, then then keep doing that and, and do it as long as you're having that challenge and fulfillment. It's not always the same thing. It's fun, but challenging and fulfilling and you have some autonomy and some, some control. Stay on active duty, stay in uniform as long as you want. When the fun stops, there will be no doubt. And at that point, do not be afraid to leave active duty to move into the reserves or National Guard or some other equivalent of part-time. And as a dual military couple, you might even have to have that difficult conversation about whether one of you wants to totally leave the military and become a civilian. And again, I would say you have tremendous human capital. You look at the outside world from inside the bubble of the military, and it may seem intimidating. You may seem like you're not going to be able to make that transition, that nobody's going to hire you, that you're worthless and weak, and everybody's going to hate you, and you'll never survive in the civilian world. And I hear this so often from my audience. Uh, We call it the military inferiority complex. But the reality is everything that you've done so far has brought you skills that are the soft skills that are difficult for an employer to just immediately train up an employee on. The employer can show you how to do the basics of your job in a civilian career. It's a little more difficult for them to acquire those soft skills and show you how to do that on your own. And so you're bringing all those skills and your background from the military to that civilian career. They'll show you everything you need to know to do your job. But just by coming to that employer with what you've done and your human resources background, that's huge. I don't know if you've met Nicole Schweigman yet. Everybody else in the HR community seems to know Nicole, but she can, you know, well, wait a couple of days, maybe she'll track you down. (laughs) But she's an example of someone who was on active duty, left active duty, and then actually came back on active duty in the HR community. And she's had tours with industry. And she will be able to explain exactly why the things that you do in the Navy on active duty transfer so well to a civilian career. So again, challenging and fulfilling stay on active duty as long as you can. And if it's not working, then go to the reserves or guard. And if that doesn't work either, then do not be afraid to go total civilian. Again, you've got a high savings rate. You might have military pension. And if you don't, you'll still have that tremendous human capital that will get you to financial independence. I have way too many people to try to gut it out for 20. You're sticking around for the next seven years for all the right reasons. And, and you're aware of what the, the deadlines are and what you have to do. So, you know, if that's, if that's working, keep doing that. But again, if the quality of life is not there, if there are other things that you want to do and you feel like you're just trying to gut it out for that pension, that's, that's usually a compromise that doesn't work out. I don't know if you've seen me trot this line out on all the other financial independence forums or on Facebook or social media. But I feel very strongly about that. Uh, you mm-hmm. you end up with more money at the finish line for financial independence than you really need. 
And then if you're investing aggressively, it compounds to way more than enough. And you'll question the choices you made and the personal sacrifices you made to get to that point. Yeah. And you've already brought up at the start, one of the primary issues that we face, certainly towards the start of our relationship. And actually, I feel like that decision is almost likely to be taken away from us at some point because co-location for us is something that I think is part of the policy of the US Navy or if you're a spouse, you you can apply to be co-located. But only if you're in the US military. Right, of course. Yeah. So as as far as the US military is concerned, I'm just a civilian. I'm another dependent. And just as, as much as the Royal Navy is concerned, at best, you are potentially an exchange officer. Or, I don't even or know if they know that I exist. Probably, <laughs> probably not. Probably at least, not. at least we're at least we're starting off with an honest relationship between the two militaries. So <laughs> no, instead, of, instead of pretending but, that we're going to keep you together or assign you to the same home port, you know, the gloves are off. We're just not even going to try. <laughs> it's so interesting the difference yeah. of attitude between the foreign navies about certainly married couples. So, yeah. for myself, being married gets me absolutely nothing else in terms of uh, financial aid or benefit i would be entitled for slightly better housing than a single person's housing if i were to if i were to stay on base but again we handle that very differently as well whereas uh, megan gets a tax-free allowance every single month for military housing or whatever i have to pay that out of my salary and it's subsidized slightly but it's still money that's coming out so is... I, I'm pretty sure she married you for love anyway, not just for extra money. No, so, of course, but you tend to... friendly <laughs> accent, actually. <laughs> you, you, tend to, you definitely tend to focus on the financial stuff when you're going through yeah. all of this. But that was afterwards. We found fight after we got married, 100%. Okay. So. okay. <laughs> yeah, and um, so co-location-wise, the original plan was, by virtue of this very special relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom, There are a number of positions that are normally open for U.S. Navy personnel to come over to the United Kingdom. And there are a number of United States bases over here, certainly Air Force wise. And then there are a couple of positions working with U.S. Navy or with the U.S. Coast Guard that the Royal Navy then send their guys out. So we were very much involved in looking at these positions, which are quite hotly contested most of the times. They are golden tickets. People are very interested in traveling the world a little bit more, get more involved in other cultures and having that as their overall experience that they have with their respective navies. I am actually currently medically downgraded within the Mm. Royal Navy. So by matter of that, I might be, and it certainly depends on how well or not well my rehabilitation goes, I might be getting a medical discharge, which is very much along similar lines to a medical discharge in the US Navy as well. And because of that, The focus is now on, well, it looks like I may well be coming out to the United States as opposed to Megan being able to come over to the United Kingdom. So we're we're kind of working things that way around. That sounds good. And if you decide between the two of you that you want to live in an area that has a high concentration of military, like a large military base or an area like Washington, D.C., or someplace that has multiple uh, general and admiral commands, three and four star level, there's uh, many more opportunities, I think, to settle in and find something you want to do there. And don't sell yourself short, man. I mean, I know you're in a different Navy and in the United States instead of in the U.K., 
but you also bring all those skills to that area if you choose to work there as a, as a contractor or civil servant or some other capacity. And so, again, human capital, it's there and, and you have quite a bit of it, both of you. It's a lot easier, though, when one of you can uh, drive the career choices and where to live and what jobs to have and the other one follows along and, and fits in and makes that work. That's much, I think, much better for domestic harmony and, and a quality of life. Absolutely. And actually, on that note, I've kind of got involved recently in seeing what is available for US military spouses and the opportunities for increasing, like you say, your human capital. There are so many opportunities, free courses, free accreditations, even so much as paying for university on the side as well. So that's definitely a route that I could go down. It's something that I've been investigating at the moment, not just to save money, but also to help out with my little bit of identity crisis once you leave the armed forces and maybe you experience this as well. I'm kind of thinking- You've, you've be, you become a trophy spouse. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't want to say the word depender, but yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm just kind of, uh, it's a great opportunity, but it's also very scary, you know, taking those skills that obviously I do have somewhere and being able to market them to a civilian market. In addition to- completely immigrating to a whole other country. Yeah, that one doesn't bother me so much. Well, I, I don't know. I've heard from a lot of people who have immigrated about how, you know, you can have these great qualifications in other countries and then you come to America and we're like, oh, well, it's not American. So we don't. That doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In your situation, I would look more at getting uh, licenses or certifications than I would at looking at getting an advanced degree. I mean, if you wanted to go out and get an advanced degree in some other field that you've always been looking at and interested during your life, follow your interests. But I wouldn't feel compelled to get any kind of an American university degree just to feel like you have a better opportunity in the job market. I think certifications, licensing is probably going to prove to be more important than than any kind of a university blessing you with being able to do something. I kind of feel like that's almost a, a tick in the box that's required for a lot of employers. It is because uh, your college degree shows an employer that you are capable of showing up regularly and doing some project for you know, however long it took you to get that degree. You're past that now. And mm-hmm. all your years in the military give them that understanding and that uh, agreement that you can do things, you can run a project, you can achieve a goal. More importantly, those soft skills, right? Like persistence in the face of adversity, uh, calm under crisis. Uh, you don't freak out at what other people uh, that have always been in a civilian office environment might regard as as some emergency. And you think, well, I've, I've fought fires and flooding. This is this is nothing. <laughs> and so those things, I think, the biggest uh, impact you can have on your career will just be networking and uh, keep staying open to uh, talking with people, finding out what in- industry interests you, and then starting to talk to the people that are working for those corporations you're interested in. And yeah, LinkedIn is full of that stuff. And I think you'll do very well at it just because of your background and your experience. Again, if you wanted to go get a master's in like an MBA in finance, and and it's because that to you is interesting and challenging and fulfilling, and then that's something you should go do. But I would not feel obligated to do that just so that you could go out there and get a career or or get an American version of of a career that you would have easily had back in the UK. And I certainly would not expect American corporate industries to reward you just because you got that degree. Many of them would look at that and say, well, okay, but what work experience do you have? You know, not just the degree. No, of course, that's certainly very settling. Obviously, we're 
yeah. very boxed in. I joined the Royal Navy immediately out of school. And they did exactly the same thing. So it's all we've ever known. Yep. It's a scary transition. And once you're leaving the security of having that military paycheck and military benefits, it's easy to take that scarcity mentality with you to the career search. And once you're on the other side of it, I can attest to having the scarcity mentality when I was on active duty. Once you're on the other side of that, you begin to realize there's opportunity everywhere. And remote work especially has, even in the last year, dramatically opened up those opportunities. And you'll make that shift to an abundance mindset. And again, this is not easy. It sounds like it's simple to say, but seeing all those opportunities, seeing the network, seeing the people you can talk with and getting these offers like, you know, okay, you seem to know what you're doing. Could you come work for us and help us with this? And those are the kinds of personal conversations you'll have. It's not about the right resume and it's not about filling out the right job application. It's about having conversations, many conversations with many people to figure out where you can fit in and help them with their problems because of who you are and what you know how to do. That's where the abundance mindset kicks in. You'll see that opportunity everywhere. And and luckily, you're probably covered for shelter and groceries uh, as you go about finding your career. You know, at least you know you've got some some breathing room to work on that while you're following your spouse's career around wherever she's stationed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Thank you very much, Dave. <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> yeah, so I'll be fine in like seven years. Matt will be fine. When he gets out of the world. <laughs> just, just keep showing up for work. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um. So we did notice that you live in a very high cost of living area with Hawaii. So what is it that you found? Like, what's your niche? I mean, obviously, we know you are writing books and counseling people on military benefits or retirement and stuff like that. What is it exactly that is like your title or that's allowing you I, to live there? <laughs> what do I do all day? I get that question a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> well, the, the first thing is high savings rate. I tell people when you're striving for financial independence, the, the sole thing to focus on is a high savings rate. But you do that with a combination of income and frugality. My spouse and I have always been frugal. I, I spent 20 years of active duty as a submariner. And so that's like the rock bottom standard that I measure the rest of my quality of life is, is what it was like on my last submarine. And the frugality with us does what we talk about. It's challenging and fulfilling as well. You know, when you're being frugal, you're, you're buying quality food and you're not wasting it. And so you actually end up being more frugal than if you had bought a bunch of convenience food or a bunch of junk food that you never actually finished and wasted that and had to throw it away. And when you find something you enjoy doing, you're going to optimize it and you're going to optimize your lifestyle. And so Hawaii on the surface of it, like, like any major city. You know, let's look at all the dozen cities in America where they, they are called high cost living areas like San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York City, Chicago, Houston. All of those are expected to be a high cost of living area because the biggest expense there is housing. And, and once you crack the code on that, once you figure out how you're going to pay for your shelter, everything else falls into place. Uh, I would say that living out here on Oahu is very expensive in terms of finding a shelter. But once you do, uh, you don't spend a lot of money on utilities because you're living in a very tropical climate and maybe you need air conditioning, but most people are living in a part of the island that has plenty of trade wind cooling and it doesn't get too cold and it doesn't get too hot. And so your utility expenses are actually quite low. When you're living local, you're eating local food. Now, I know I could eat American potatoes. I, I know I could eat mainland meat. I, I know that there's all kinds of things that I grew up with in Pennsylvania that I could eat out here in Hawaii. And it would cost a lot of money to do that. 
But instead, I eat a lot of fish. I eat a lot of local fruit, a lot of locally grown food. And nobody around here actually pays any money for mangoes or papaya if they can grow their own in their backyard. But if you were to start eating them where you are, that would be a lot of money. And so those are the ways that you find the things that are important to you and and find the things that are locally sourced that will reduce your cost of living. And the way we cracked the uh, the housing question was <clears throat> we ended up buying crappy houses and living in them and working on that and putting sweat equity in them. So we've done that twice. We've started out with a, a house that is in a great location, got great bones, but has been neglected or ridden hard or just even neglected. And so we've taken that and put in sweat equity and improved it. And you know now we've got plenty of equity in our house because of the sweat that we put into it. And we've taken that first house we bought uh, that we lived in all those years ago, and we still rent that out. Now, as an investment, it's a lousy investment. But I've also seen over the last 20 years of the rise of the World Wide Web that if you chose to live in a high-cost living area like Hawaii, you would probably rent or find a way to house hack or live in a duplex and own the other half. Those are all over websites like ChooseFI and Bigger Pockets. And then if you wanted to invest in real estate, you would do that anywhere else in the world except for Hawaii. You do that all over the mainland where it makes sense, you know, the top 50 zip codes in America to buy your investment rental properties. Now, you can still make money here on Oahu in real estate uh, if you buy a, a property and end up doing a teardown and a rebuild, that, that turns out to be profitable. If you buy a, an apartment building and it turns out that it was horribly mismanaged, well, you can probably make money at that. But there are plenty of professionals who do that every day here, and that's their source of living income. I mean, they're doing that as a profession, not just as a side hustle or as a, an interest of their investments. So I would say that when you try to live in a high-cost living area, that you probably want to rent in that area and then own real estate elsewhere where it gives you a higher cash flow, where it gives you more return on your investment. Live local, so you're eating local. And then uh, surfing, it turns out I can only surf one board at a time and surf wax is really cheap around here. And that really accounts for the majority of my entertainment is I, I really like surfing. I like being outdoors. I like being in the Hawaii climate. And so if you have that kind of thing, it doesn't cost a lot of money to live that lifestyle. Suddenly all your costs have gone down. And, and you're going to do that anywhere in a country. You know, I know people that will live in a very rural area that already has a very low cost of living. And maybe it's because they enjoy engaging in a sport that seems relatively expensive, like snow skiing or mountain climbing, right? Gear intensive could be very expensive to buy the high, right quality stuff at the beginning. But the more you do it, the cheaper it gets. So you'll, you'll figure those things out and you'll find those, those ways the, to refine your expenses. Now, you're probably looking at the money you spend now and you're comparing your progress toward financial independence based on today's expenses or, or whatever you judge are going to be your expenses once you stop working for a paycheck. And, and that's, that's the only way to do it. That's the only way you really have any feel for how well your assets are going to support your expenses. Once you actually start living that lifestyle, whether you test drive it for a year or two before you stop working or whether you have stopped working and now you're starting your new life, you're going to go back and you're going to review all of your expenses. And by that, I mean, you're going to question everything you're paying for insurance of your home or your autos or your health insurance or liability, life insurance. You're going to question all of those and you're going to negotiate discounts. You're going to look at the ways you're spending your time and you're going to optimize the way you do that. And an example of that would be travel. 
Uh, right now, your travel is probably constrained by a week or two of leave, and you're probably doing that in hotels and relatively resort type of areas. There's a joke about living like a two-week millionaire because that's as long as your vacation is. If you chose travel as something you wanted to do once you were financially independent, then you'd probably do slow travel. You'd probably live somewhere for a couple of weeks, maybe even a couple of months. You'd find a long-term rental like an apartment, not just an Airbnb, but you would talk to the Airbnb host and say, no, I want to live here for a whole month. You would insert yourself in a neighborhood and eat in the neighborhood pubs or shop in the neighborhood markets and just generally live like a local and you'd be taking public transportation probably. You probably wouldn't tackle a car if you were living in a major city and so forth. And you would optimize all the expenses for what's important to you. Maybe it's important to you to live in a really nice Airbnb and eat in a really nice restaurant, or maybe you don't care about the restaurant, maybe you don't care about the lodgings, but you'll spend the money where it brings you the most value. And so that is what gives you that margin when you meet the financial independence criteria, you know, the 4% safe withdrawal rate. Once you optimize all that spending for what's important to you, that's where any oversights or any other issues with the 4% safe withdrawal rate or your investments, that's where the margin comes from. That's, for, that's where it works out is because you're looking at those expenses and optimizing your life. And you may spend the first year after you begin your financial independence life, you may spend a year on that journey just to make sure you understand what you're spending your money on, what's really important to you and whether you want to keep living that way. So I get the question a lot about, you know, you, you must have a gazillion dollars to be able to live in Hawaii. But in this situation, once you've cracked the code on real estate, everything else falls in the line. Yeah, it's interesting because it seems like you've you're leveraging almost the extra time that you have in retirement and that security from your pension in order to increase the amount of frugality or time dedicated to frugality in that sense. And that doesn't mean doing without things that you, you would otherwise enjoy. It just means perhaps right. a, a shift in focus, perhaps, and taking in the fact that, yeah, okay, I've chosen to live my retirement or to begin my retirement in Hawaii. What does that actually mean? Why have I chosen this? Well, it means I'm going to eat a hell of a lot more fish potentially, which is going to save me money as well as keep me healthy and surfing every single day. That's right. Whereas, and, and whereas, you, whereas in England, it might be you just eat tea and crumpets every single meal or something. And, and that's okay if, if that works for you, if that's what you feel is, is valuable to you. I, I will point out that the nice thing about being in the military is that you have a much better appreciation for the line between frugality and deprivation. You've spent too much time over here and you know how to back off and get back to where you're enjoying spending your money where it brings you value. And when we talk about frugality and people bring up that image of dumpster diving and recycling your dental floss and your toilet paper and, and never spending any money on anything and never having any fun at all. But the reality is that frugality is optimizing your spending. You're putting it where you feel like you're getting the most value for your money. And you're cutting out the waste. You know, you've you've looked at the things in your life and decided that if it's valuable to you, you'll spend the money. And if it's not valuable to you, then you're not willing to spend the money and you're not willing to work for it. So although we all might want to own a Tesla electric vehicle, uh, maybe that just doesn't have the value that goes with the high upfront expense. Or maybe we do value a Tesla because we know we'll never have to buy gasoline again. So, so for some people, the Tesla might actually make sense depending on whether you're willing to work for that. And the fact that I think that the rank system that we're used to, you know, as you join, you get paid less and you will always get a steady increase of pay. And what you choose to use that extra money towards, you understand that you had less before that. We never have to go to someone and try to 
leverage ourselves against a, a higher wage. We never have to say, well, I think I deserve right. more. It's going to be absolutely guaranteed up until the point of potentially, you know, becoming an admiral or commander or, or whatever. And until that stage, you can decide whether or not you want that lifestyle creep to be a part of your, your life at that point, or if you're going to use the extra, which in this case, this is what we do, anytime that we get any kind of pay rise and we've discussed it, there's, there's zero point in us spending that extra money on more stuff, really, is there? Yeah, Matt makes me uh, price all goods at the store in terms of BT sacks. So if I want Lululemon for a hundred dollars, that's how many BT sacks does that make? <laughs> Too many for Lululemon, <laughs> I can tell you now. And it's a very good way to look at it is what life energy are you trading for that material possession? Now, if it's valuable to you, if it brings you joy, that's great. But on the other hand, you've both been accustomed to living a very austere life with just one sea bag and one tiny little rack to sleep in. And you can base everything after that on that deprivation standard. You can base everything in your quality of life on, on how it's improved since then. And you're right about things like salary negotiations. Uh, and I, I joke about how it was easier to push for financial independence and never having to work again than it would be to go to a corporate career and have to actually negotiate my salary with my, with my corporation. Financial independence is so much easier for getting rid of all those problems. Absolutely. It's like a complete reverse mirror world where instead of <laughs> us having to go to Very our much. bosses and say that we deserve it, we have reports written about us and they tell us whether you're good enough or... And it's, so, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I think, much more frank and honest uh, in the military side than perhaps it would be in a, in a corporate world. And so you, you bring that with you when you try to make that transition. And I think the anecdotal data, we tend to sell ourselves too cheaply when we make that transition to the civilian world. There's a very famous statistic among military veterans in the U.S. that within two years of getting out of whatever service they were in, whatever career field they were in, and getting into a civilian career, and whether that career was successful or not, but within two years of starting a civilian career, half of all veterans change jobs. And it's not because they can't hack it. It's not because they can't get a job. It's not because they can't afford the standard of living. It's because they figured out how to change their job in the corporate environment. They figured out how to get more money. They figured out how to get a better job somewhere else with another company, or they figured out how to live somewhere else. They've cracked the code. They've learned the new language and the new culture of working in the civilian world. And so, again, from the military side, that's very scary. And going through the transition is stressful. But on the other side, uh, once you finish that transition and start learning what you're now in a new environment of figuring out, Within two years, you'll probably have it all figured out and you'll probably change jobs, change corporations, uh, make a big change in your life because you finally know how much you're worth and how to go ask for it and go get it and go find out what you really want to do after you've lived with the civilian side for you know, 12, 18, 24 months. Right. I think for me personally, once I've done my time and retired, I mean, this obviously could change, everything can change, but... I think personally, I don't want to go to a corporate job. I don't want to go to any job. I want to be able to retire early and go live the dream, you know? Yep. So and that gives that, you the motivation to start saving and uh, investing and to push for financial independence. Now, you're, you're equating your, your freedom to not work again seven years from now to the number of leggings you want to own today. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, okay. which makes it really easy to not buy leggings. Um, yeah. <laughs> but with that, that has like kind of put me in a state of 
I don't want to say confusion, but I, I feel a little bit torn with my TSP as far as whether or not I want to go traditional or Roth. And I know you get this question a lot, but I think most people, when they consider, oh, well, obviously Roth is better because you're already taxed on it. You're going to be at a higher tax rate later. So do the Roth now and you've already paid the taxes. But in my position where I want to, once I'm out of the military, just live off my military pension, I'm like, well, will my tax rate be so much lower because I'm not planning on having a second income or a second job in addition to that. I plan on just living a low enough cost of living lifestyle that that's enough. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think in that case, traditional is better or Roth? Well, here, first of all, the, the universal answer for every financial planning question is it depends. Whatever question you have, the answer is it depends. But on the, the Roth TSP versus traditional TSP or Roth IRA versus traditional IRA, the issue is that if you can predict your income tax bracket for the next 60 years of your life, then I can answer that question for you. And that's the problem is having to predict those income tax brackets. Uh, what we've seen in the military, and, and this is anecdotal, there's not you know any national university research, there's no RAND Corporation validation of this. But what we've seen anecdotally is that in the military where a third of your compensation is not taxed, that you're probably in the lowest income tax bracket of your life. And the reason we say that is because if you serve in the military until you get a pension, that pension is going to be subject to federal tax. And the kind of person you are who gets to the active duty pension, although you may not seek a corporate career, you may not go back to an office life you still have that human capital and it's probably going to turn into money. You know, now, I never expected I was going to be writing books all the time and, and running a blog and all the other things I've done over the last 20 years, uh, 18 years of retirement, but that could happen to you. I, I think you're going to find out that when you leave active duty, even if you have an active duty pension, you're still going to have money raining down on your head occasionally for whatever reason to do things you enjoy doing and you're going to get paid for it, which is taxable. So then that continues on and your investments will continue to grow. Even though you're invested in the total stock market index, you'll still have compound growth. You'll essentially double your assets that are invested every 10 to 12 years. And when you get to required minimum distributions in age 72 with these traditional accounts, suddenly you'll see that you'll have to take a tremendous distribution every year. You'll have Medicare premiums that'll be subject to a, a tax bracket and it's known as IRMA. But what happens is not only do you have RMDs, you also have higher Medicare premiums and you have taxation of your social security withdrawals. And so because we can't predict your income tax brackets for the next six decades, but because we know you're getting a lot of tax-free compensation now in the form of allowances, and because we've seen this trend where you'll retire from active duty and have a taxable pension, and then a little bit of extra money will start showing up for whatever reason, all those factors make us say that right now is probably the lowest income tax bracket of your life. And you should probably invest everything that you invest in a retirement account into the Roth TSP or the Roth IRA. And that's math and logic. It's as much math and logic as we can put together now. The other side of that is how you feel about this, the emotions, the behavioral financial psychology. And if you feel like that makes sense, then you're probably going to follow that plan. But if you have this nagging feeling at the back of your mind that, yes, it does make sense to pay your taxes now in hope of avoiding more taxes later, and that doesn't sit well with you, 
then it's tough to stay on that plan to contribute to all the Roth accounts. And in that case, we say, well, split the difference. Contribute half of your retirement accounts to your TSP to the Roth TSP and the other half to the traditional TSP. And same with Roth IRA and traditional IRA. When I retired from active duty, uh, we had only traditional accounts, traditional IRAs, and a little bit in a traditional TSP. And during that period between when I'd be old enough, 59 and a half, to start making withdrawals from those retirement accounts, we essentially spent 16 years doing a little bit of a Roth IRA conversion every year. And that was not only my traditional TSP and my traditional IRA, but my spouse's as well. So we had four accounts, 16 years, a little bit every year. And every year I juggled it a little bit because, you know, one year I was trying to minimize our taxable income so that our daughter could file college applications for financial assistance, other things like that. Uh, When the Great Recession came around and everybody was losing money in the stock market, uh, I did a little more of a conversion that year because it was easy to show that you had no income, right? You had taken a lot of capital losses that year. And 16 years of that, we converted at a lower income tax bracket than when we were working, but it wasn't that much lower. I mean, we probably saved over that 16 years of conversions, we probably saved an extra $25,000 in taxes. And the effort that we went in to do that, I was willing to put in that effort, right? The analysis, the paperwork, everything else. Looking back on it though, if I had started my career at a time when there were Roth TSPs and Roth IRAs, I would have just kept shoving the money into a Roth TSP and a Roth IRA all the way up through 04. And then when I got to the rank of 05, I would have thought about it. What do I really want to do that now? I've got some serious money coming in at that rank. Maybe we would have done a couple of years of traditional IRAs and traditional TSPs, but the majority would have been in the Roth. And and that's just from what you've described of what you think you're going to be doing, I think that it's easier to keep contributing to the Roth TSP and Roth IRA now. You'll never have to do any conversions later on. Just roll your Roth TSP and your Roth IRA. That's one transaction, no taxes, no calculations, no management. And if that's how you feel comfortable, if you feel comfortable doing that, then that's what I think is going to prove to be the uh, the best use of your retirement accounts. If you don't feel comfortable with it, then split the difference. Fair enough. Thank you for the answer. Uh, I, I hope that lasts of, for 20 years. <laughs> I've just been so indecisive that I actually have just been kind of splitting it. I just go on there and okay. switch it back and forth all the time, which is probably not optimal. <laughs> well, now, now you have to think about this after you retire, right? Now you're getting a pension, so your taxable income has gone down a little bit. And that first year after retirement, that first full tax year after retirement, that's when you want to look at your income and say, do I want to try to do a conversion this year? And you're going to say, you know, I could probably do about $10,000, $20,000 worth of conversion. And so just keep chipping away at it like that every year. Okay, cool. Yeah, last year when I hit 03E and then bumped up over the 14-year mark, I was like, oh, my tax bracket has gotten really high. Maybe I should switch to traditional. So that's been on my mind a lot. And then, of course, with me moving over, so we're married, filing separately at the moment. And especially if you if you watch the Dave Keegan episode, the major takeaway from that is it's pretty awkward and complicated, especially with my house sale and whatnot to married yeah. file joint at the moment. And we'll just keep that and we'll roll it over to next year. If I come over and I have that kind of time to acclimatize to the United States, don't quite have a job yet, but then keeping the pressure off from me having to go into one, we're going to be in a different tax bracket again, potentially, where all of a sudden your allowances have doubled 
or your tax allowances have doubled and we find that it comes tumbling down again, even with a potential promotion or, or whatever. It's, it's a difficult discussion because you really can't predict that many years in advance where your income tax bracket is going to be. You it doesn't stop me from guesses. trying with Excel spreadsheets, I can tell you now, Doug. <laughs> I, I, I feel your pain. I'm the same way. And, and what you do is you bring in that spreadsheet with, you know, it's 25-year timeline and 16 tabs, and you bring it over to your spouse and you say, look at this beautiful plan I've created. And they say, yeah, but what about this question that you didn't think about during the last three weeks while you're building this spreadsheet? And, and you say, you know, that's a, that's a very good question. And now you're gone for another three weeks trying to account for that one factor because like you, I've had my nose pressed up against the tree and I haven't seen the forest around me, but I've got a very clear understanding of that one little tiny narrow problem there. Yeah. It, it, it gets back to the, the fact that you'll have pension income and you'll have your savings and your investments and you're probably going to have more money than you need just based on what I've learned with all the dual military couples I've seen over the years. And it's also is a factor of your human capital. I, I, I'm not going to tell you that you're going to have to beat off the job offers every week, but I will say that there will be many attractive job offers that come to you in the first year or two after you stop working in the military. And so saying to you today that you're going to drop into a very low income tax bracket after you leave the military, that might be true for a year or two, but if you've made 10 years of traditional IRA and traditional TSP contributions, and then you stumble into a, a very profitable civilian career after the military. Now you're stuck. So did These you, are all so good did problems get, to have. In which case, did you and or your wife get to a point where you just said no to these offers? Because it seems like you're drawing on personal experience. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I've got a blog post that talks about those job offers. Uh, one of them was very attractive. Uh, it was six months after I'd retired. I was offered a civil service job that would have paid me at least as much as I earned in the military, maybe even more. Doing the same thing I did in the military, teaching nuclear engineering to civilians in a nuclear Navy shipyard. It was a couple hours a day of standing up and talking to people, which I love doing followed by a few more hours a day of sitting in my office waiting for people to come to me with questions about the nuclear engineering, which again, I, I enjoy doing that. And I would get paid for it. Why not take that job? But there were several factors. And the first one was the commitment. If I went into that job and I didn't enjoy it after six months or eight months, I could quit, but I would have felt that I didn't honor a commitment to the employer. You know, the employer was a, a friend of ours. He's a civil servant in the federal government, but he was also somebody that we had gone to college with and knew professionally for the last couple of decades. And we would have felt like we let him down because he had to go to considerable effort to find someone like me and make the job offer. And I would have felt obligated to stick that job for two or three years just to pay back his faith and his effort in finding somebody like me to hire. So that was the first thing is, what if I don't like this job? Well, I can't just quit. And so it's better to make that decision right now before I show up for the first day of work. The second issue is that I still would have had to wear a uniform. It would have been, you know, Aloha shirts and, and dockers and sneakers, but I still would have had to show up in a uniform. I still would have had to deal with rush hours. I still would have been in an office environment for 40 hours a week. And my daughter, our daughter at the time was nine and a half years old, would still need some form of after school program. And then she'd be a teenager alone at home in the afternoons. We referred to that as the danger years. And I could see that all that money that I might make at doing something I love might end up having to go to find ways to keep her out of trouble. So that didn't look like a good quality of life. To me, every time I've gotten an offer, it's been more about the dissatisfiers, the drawbacks to that offer, than it has been 
the good things in that offer. And uh, my wife, Marge, Marge nailed me on the third factor. And the third factor was I would not have been able to stop myself from trying to climb the corporate ladder. I would have started out as a, essentially a nuclear engineering instructor, but I could have gone to a nuclear engineering section leader and nuclear engineering supervisor. And, you know, I could have just kept climbing the ladder and gone ever higher. And before you know it, I would have recreated my old environment and been working 40 or 50 hours a week. Today, and again, this was a job offer I had in 2002, you know, the World Wide Web is doing great things, but remote work today is so much better than remote work was 18 years ago. Today, uh, I would put my resume into a database somewhere with a remote work agency or, or, or just watch for connections where somebody wants me to do something. And my response would be, yes, but only for 10 hours a week. And it's got to be remote work. You know, and that eliminates many of the dissatisfiers, right? You get rid of the commute, you get rid of the workplace attire, and you can do things much more in your terms. So those are the kinds of job opportunities I would look for today is something that you could do in your own schedule from anywhere in the world. And as long as you didn't have to show up at a certain time of the day, whether you were in Europe or in Australia or in America, you could still work on your conditions on your terms, then I'd be attracted. No, absolutely. And did it get easier every time as well to say no? Oh, oh once you get some practice of saying no, thanks. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. But, but that applies also to volunteering. It's the same slippery slope where you show up and you're volunteering and you're doing good stuff and you're working with people and you're having a fun time. Or, or maybe you're working with animals because you're volunteering at a pet shelter. Wherever you are, you're enjoying what you do. And little by little, there's a little bit of a creep. You know, as people come in and out of that volunteer position, suddenly you're the experienced one. And then somebody notices that maybe they should hire you because of all that experience and all of your skills. And, and little by little, suddenly you've recreated. So again, even volunteering, you get better at saying, oh, no, thanks. Uh, yeah. I would say that, that being a blogger, being a writer, podcasting, stuff like that, that you can do on your own, totally self-employed, totally entrepreneurial, I feel is much more flexible because I can do as much as I want and work myself into a frenzy, but I can also take a break whenever I want. I realized the other day I went three months in between writing blog posts, which just if you told me that that I was going to do that even two years ago, I would have been horrified at how much I would have slacked off. Now, the truth is that we were in that three-month period finishing writing the book, finishing editing the book, and starting to market the book. You know, It wasn't that I wasn't writing at all. I just wasn't writing blog posts. But still, there's a big three-month gap there where I was able to completely drop one occupation that I had tremendously enjoyed and, and would go back to in favor of another, not an occupation, but a project that I tremendously enjoyed and just took up more time than I would have had in the first one. And, you know, I didn't lose any money. I didn't change any traffic. Everything worked out just fine. But I was able to do that because it was all on my terms instead of on a corporate employer's terms. Go build your own career to your own quality of life and don't feel constrained to fit yourself into somebody else's definition of how your, your working years should be. That's brilliant advice. <laughs> well, you can only come at that from a perspective of abundance, and it's hard to get to that. You know, when you're leaving the military and your attitude, your mindset is scarcity, it's hard to develop that abundance mindset, but it will come. You'll also look at your, your assets and you'll say, you know, we have more money than we need already. Why do we want to go out there and earn more? Why do we want to be more efficient at piling up money when we have more than we need? Yeah, exactly. So me and Meg were, were thinking about things that we could possibly discuss. And I, and I said that I was kind of, I wanted to come at it from the, certainly the military spouse point of view, because 
Um, whilst I certainly see myself as active serving military, I've a little bit of an eye on the future there. And I was really curious mm -hmm. about your wife and, and her contribution. And now obviously I see that you are, well, you were a, a dual military couple that has almost certainly helped with this air of abundance that you now have. My question would be, she had this opportunity when she was coming up to 20 years and about to go in the reserves. I suppose, and this is completely me guessing here, that when you leave the military but join the reserves, you can also continue to earn your military pension. Right. Completely. One week in a month of uh, drills and two weeks a year of active duty. And instead of starting your pension, as soon as you reach 20 years of service in the U.S. military of active duty, a reserve pension starts at age 60. And right. We sat down and we said, if you take this job offer that the assignment officer insists is vital to the national security, even though you're sacrificing a lot of things to do it, you're giving up $750,000 to a million dollars over the next 20 years. That's the price of turning down this active duty assignment. That's the price of not gutting it out for two more years to 20 years of active duty. That's the price you're going to pay. And we looked at our account balances and we looked at the fact that I was already one year away from earning my pension. And we looked at all the things we'd done and all the potential we had. And we said, it's only money. And that's when she made the decision that it was time to leave active duty and go into the reserves for quality of life, not for financial reasons. And it taught me an important lesson. Uh, I gutted it out to 20 because I was ignorant about the Navy Reserve. I had no idea. I never made the time to learn more about it. I always had my nose to the grindstone and didn't sit back in my chair and look around the office and realize that I was surrounded by happy reservists who had forged other careers outside of active duty. And I overshot the finish line on my financial independence with the pension and everything else that I gutted out to 20 by about a million dollars. And if you could sell me back those eight years of my life in active duty when I should have left active duty for the reserves, I'd pay you a million dollars. It's a bargain. I'd pay you $2 million and I'd still feel like I got the better end of the deal. Mm. That's really interesting because it's, it's very easy when I'm making all these Excel spreadsheets to go, well, I mean, if you if you worked only one more year, that's two and a half percent extra. And if we just spread that across, year. yeah, just one more year. Yeah, just but if, was, if if you work <laughs> one more oh, yeah, year, of yeah, of course, it <laughs> I can't, I can't change that. But the, the question is, how much of your life energy are you willing to put into that? And that brings it back to your point that if you're enjoying what you're doing and you feel fulfilled, then it's worth it. But if it's yes. not, then it's not. Yes. And especially if you're struggling with health issues, with medical issues, with physical issues like, you know, your knees are getting creaky or your, your final spinal column, <laughs> we're all there. And so the sacrifice is not just a sacrifice of your time. This is a sacrifice of your physical health and maybe your emotional and your mental health. And maybe you're just a real fun guy to be around at the end of the day from your family perspective. So it's not only about the money. I mean, it know, I know it represents tremendous financial security, but many times it comes from a scarcity mindset instead of that abundance mindset. Right. And in our case, obviously, the give up, the huge give up is the time to actually be together. Because I mean, in the last yeah. year, I think we've been together a total of seven weeks or something like that. that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Especially with COVID and everything else, slowing down travel. And so well, my, that's a my, huge, huge trade-off. My spouse and I joke that we've known each other for 41 years, and we've been married for 34 years, and we've been together for 32 years. 
that's doing pretty good, I think. Yeah, that's 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 doing all right. I think I, I think we could put it down into weeks. <laughs> I think that tells you how low our standards have become that we accept that as a good deal. But uh, that, right. that's and the then, whole thing. Like, with... For me, I'm like, well, life is so short. Like you can't yeah. get any of that time back. So that makes it a huge huge trade-off to decide between your career and time with your spouse, you know, because nothing is guaranteed. Mm. So. And to come I'm out on the to... other end of the million, and, and it was a million dollar question, do you yeah. stick it out and keep a million dollars for two years or do you do what makes you happy? Now, that is a huge difference, I think, between the mindsets potentially of the United States military and our military, because our pension will never be that good it would never be that amount so if you were to offer someone that amount but similarly there is a higher amount of focus on time off and time with family so where mm. we perhaps fall down on the money front with pensions we make up for on a year-to-year -year basis my leave balance is significantly higher than a u.s military person would get and not only that, I don't have to count weekends. Weekends are weekends, wow. uh, and they don't come out. They don't come out of my military balance at all. So there's a, so there's perhaps a higher focus on the home work balance. There, you you look amazed at that. You're like, oh my god. Well, I'm thinking. Say, I'm uh, thinking back about all those offers that the British and Australian navies have made over the years to the submariners of the American Navy, and uh, beginning yes, to have. wonder if I yeah, I might, I might have missed an opportunity there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a. Uh my close to my heart issue with the military. And so if I ever stick around long enough to make it to Captain Admiral to end up at NAV first in an HR billet, weekends will not be counted against leave. If I can just get in a position to where I can make that happen, I'll consider my career successful. When, when you're CNO, <laughs> I'll be happy to write the point paper for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Hey, this is Andrew from the Choose FI team. Hope you're enjoying the interview. We're going to get right back to it right after these quick messages. So I have looked and I looked previously, I've now cast it out of my mind, but I did look at potentially what would a transfer from the Royal Navy to the US Navy or uh, the US Coast Guard look like? I'm in a very important job that other navies really work. So I'm, I'm a pilot myself. And New Zealand, Australia, Canada, these are all places that would happily take me and, and yeah. almost throw a passport at me for doing so. But the United States isn't one of those. And unless I'm a citizen, they're just simply not interested in, in anything I have to provide. But I have had just had a friend who did leverage his position within the Royal Navy and move out to New Zealand, which in retrospect over the last six months has been an amazing decision for him, of course. It was nothing to do with financially. But um, yeah, it would have been a really good co-location potential opportunity at the time that unfortunately didn't play out particularly well, which is why we have to now look at other routes. So I'm very surprised that it's not open actually in the USA to outside people, but hey, hey. I, I am too. I think we're missing an opportunity there, but we have been very slow to uh, bring in the talent we need. And at the same time, we complain bitterly and perpetually about how low retention is and why we can't keep anybody on active duty. And yet you're still paying for your vacations for the weekends and we could make a relatively simple, straightforward fix. I don't know if this has come up in, in your family discussions, but when I look at Marge and I and her maternity leave for giving birth to our daughter versus today where it's 12 weeks of leave. Everybody says, wow, that's awesome. But I'm also watching my son-in-law try to actually take that 12 weeks of paternity leave 
And it's much more difficult in practice than it is in the instruction and the theory and the cheerful headlines you see in all the military press. Now, I'd like to think that it's all much better over there in the civilian side of the fence, right? The grass looks very green over there, but it isn't always much better in the corporate world than it is in the military world. So you just might be trading one set of very frustrating problems that you can only fix when you're a CNO for another set of very frustrating problems that you can only fix when you're the CEO or even worse, the president of the United States. Yeah, I would say rather than a workplace issue, that's probably more of a, a cultural thing. Obviously, in Europe, in, much. It, it must be in headlines at various points when there's not much else going on. But the maternity leave and paternity leave that's offered over in, in Europe and, and other developing countries is way beyond anything that's offered, certainly within the corporate yes. world in the United yes. States. The military and, and is actually considered great compared to, I think, a lot compared of compared to the minus like maybe Silicon Valley. Yeah. And the more that my wife and I travel, mostly our travel has been overseas in Europe and a little bit in Asia. But the more we travel, the more we are aware of those differences, those cultural differences, where in America, you can become king of the world, uh, financially successful, and it's all on you. However, we also work ourselves to death. It's not quite as bad as some cultures, but we do work ourselves to death to achieve that overnight success, our self-made wealth. Now, I would much rather take a more gradual approach, and, and that's the point of the dual military aspect is that you have a chance to get just one of you get an inflation-fighting life annuity, and that's enough. You don't absolutely both need to have an active duty pension in your 40s if one of you can get a reserve pension starting at age 60. The real benefit comes from the inflation-fighting aspect of the pension and the, the cheap healthcare aspect. Absolutely. And then once you take away the whole keeping up with the Joneses thing and realize that stuff yep. doesn't matter yep. um, and are able to actually live that frugal lifestyle, that's yep. kind of where we found ourselves on Good. the path to FI and realizing like that's our why to FI. Good. And the whole point is that you're taking charge of your career and your finances and your lifestyles now at your discretion to some extent, instead of later in life when you're faced with a health crisis or a career crisis or a family crisis you're controlling your approach to financial independence on your terms instead of having it forced on you by circumstances that you never took a chance to control. Right. You keep on mentioning the healthcare thing. And do you know, this is one thing that I'm not really sure of. Do you know um, if TRICARE still covers you if you live abroad? Yeah. There's a, a guy on Facebook, John Letaw, L-E-T-A-W. John is a retired military. Uh, I don't know what service he's in, but he's living here on Oahu. And he and his spouse travel frequently. And I mean, like 10 months of the year frequently. And they use TRICARE Overseas. That's the name of the program, TRICARE Overseas. If you go to the TRICARE website, and again, this is not something that has any relevance to your life right now, but if you go to the TRICARE website and look up TRICARE Overseas, you'll see that that is available when you're overseas. But let's get out of that scarcity mindset and let's consider the fact that you're traveling overseas and Healthcare overseas, the, the actual cost of paying cash to a doctor is cheaper than just about anything in the American system. So when my spouse and I travel and we're overseas, we'll go get our dental exams, and our teeth cleanings. That's, that's one of the first things we do is go take care of that because it's incredibly cheap to get dental care overseas compared to the U.S. Another thing we've done is medical tourism. Whenever we go to Bangkok, I make an appointment at the Bumrun Grad Hospital in Bangkok just to get one of their physical exams. And it's not just the data and the checkups and the analysis and the suggestions from a medical doctor. 
it's the whole concierge experience. You feel like you're in a country club being taken care of just for a routine physical compared to all the military physicals that both of you have endured over the years. And just, <laughs> I, I would pay money just, just for that experience. And I, I would I even, if, you're, if you're just doing it because you missed the military physicals. <laughs> no, yeah, not a bit, but this is the way, this is the way military physicals should be. Uh, and that's why it's so much fun to do that. So your question about TRICARE is, TRICARE puts a, a cap on your annual expenses on your risk. And that's the best thing about it is that if you do have a catastrophe, your expenses of that catastrophe are covered. You're not going to have to make a decision over groceries versus cancer, chemotherapy, or chronic medication expenses. And the other advantage of that is that you know that you're going to have those expenses fairly routinely. You know what they're going to be instead of working with the Affordable Care Act, where every year you're going to go through some kind of renegotiation and change. So again, the inflation-fighting part of the pension and the cheap health care, I think, are much more valuable than the extra year or two of income and percentages of pension boost from that extra year or two of working. It's still very hard for me to get my head around on most of the online Facebook fire groups or whatever, where they have to factor in two to three thousand dollars a month. Yeah, yeah, just for family healthcare plans. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. No, no. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that's coming from you know, obviously the National Health Service point of view. Oh, I will um, say that those two to three thousand dollars per month are for pretty chronic, pretty significant existing conditions, or. Uh, for fairly low deductibles. You know, if you were willing to take a, an $8,000 a year deductible against your premiums, then you would pay a lot less than two or $3,000 a month. But it all depends, again, on the free market risk that you're willing to take. And not all of us are able to adequately analyze and feel comfortable with those risks. And so TRICARE, to some extent, takes away all of that and lets you just pay your premiums and go see your doctor when you need to and not have to worry about it. Thank God for TRICARE. <laughs> Matt asks me questions about the U.S. health system, and I'm fortunate enough to be like, I have no idea. I right. have not had to deal with it. So I'm grateful for that every day. Well, I would say that were you to stick around for seven years for that pension, that active duty pension and TRICARE, then all of your TRICARE health insurance questions and, and agonizing analysis, all that goes away. Uh, you either pay a monthly premium to be able to see a, a health manager, or you pay a smaller premium to see anybody who you want with a slightly larger copayment. And those are the two choices, essentially. Uh, your third choice is to travel internationally and, and pay cash at Bummer and Grant Hospital in the Philippines, uh, excuse me, in Bangkok. And so that's very comforting uh, compared to the Affordable Care Act. Now, again, the choices are very similar in the Affordable Care Act for civilian insurance. If you decide not to stick around for a pension, you'll be able to take those same skills to the Affordable Care Act and say, okay, well, we're going to buy a catastrophic policy because we're going to live healthy and we're going to avoid those big expenses of lifestyle abuse like obesity, diabetes, as much as we can. And so we're going to just have high deductibles and lower premiums. And that's, I think, the decision that many financially independent people make in the civilian side when you do not have that kind of health insurance. Right. And did it factor in at all with your plans that you'd made for your fire life as you well? Know, it, I, it's something that I don't, I don't even put in to Excel yeah. spreadsheets or, or whatever. I don't know if that's not. I, I, I hear your concern there, and it, it falls into that category of things that scared the crap out of me when I was on active duty about retirement versus now that I've retired and I look back on how I felt when I was on active duty and I wonder what I was worried about. 
And healthcare falls under that, that consideration because I did worry considerably about getting out of the military and having to buy my own health insurance. And today, I think that although it is a cost difference, I also think that it is manageable and it's no worse than having to pay your gasoline bill or your car insurance or any other bill. You'll go out there and you'll find a deal that has the right combination of coverage and risk and you'll pay the appropriate premium. So that was one thing. The other thing that uh, I think almost everybody worries about before they reach financial independence, stop working is what am I going to do all day with all my free time? And the answer is you're going to do what you enjoy and you're probably going to do more of it. And you're probably going to be even more sucky at your time management. And you're probably going to work harder than you ever have in your life because of all these opportunities open to you versus when you were working a 40 hour a week job. And it's stuff that looks very scary when you're still stuck in a corporate environment. But once you reach financial independence, stop working. It all tends to fall into place within the first year, two years tops. That's comforting. Yeah. (laughs) That's a lot. lot, I think more on what, like the feelings Matt has been dealing with, um, knowing that he's probably the one who will end up having to get out to come over and support my career. So I think that that's probably more comforting for well, him. It looks like it looks like you married up, Matt. So I think you're making the right life to, life choices here. So <laughs> stick with Thanks that very one. Much. I, I think you're on the right track here. I, I will. I will point worth out. every penny of the tip I gave him before. <laughs> <laughs> Choose FI is going to be really happy just with the quality of recording. One of one of the things that you'll you'll look at is that you know you've you figured out how to get to financial independence. I mean, when I started writing ten years ago, it was all about how do you get to financial independence. But what about the four percent safe withdrawal rate? What about the failure rates? What about this? What about that? All of it was associated with gathering assets and making them last. I no longer get those questions. I turned sixty years old in a couple of months, and I guess I'm probably aging out of that early retirement portion of the financial independence community. And I. I don't even get questions about how to reach financial independence anymore. Instead, I get questions about how do I teach my kids to reach their financial independence? Now, maybe that's because they're saying, and I want them to move out of my basement, but maybe it's also because you want your kids to go out in the world and succeed and you want to know how to raise them so that you don't cripple them for life with the same problems that you had before you figured out financial independence. That's the latest batch of questions I get is the next generation. But there's also a a third question lurking out there that I'm now starting to uh, be considered able to have the experience to answer. And a third question is, is this sustainable for life? And uh, you know, there aren't that many people out there with 18 years of experience at this. And I'm able to say, oh yeah, it's, it's very sustainable. But there is a lot of stuff in the background behind that answer to be able to reassure people that the money will last, that you'll be happy with what you're doing, with what you do all day, and that this is something you can happily consider doing for the rest of your life. And there won't be some big upheaval when you're you know, 65 or 75 years old, incapable of returning to the workforce or incapable of moving to a new country or incapable of changing your health insurance. This, this is all sustainable for life. Mm. And so we've gotten way off the topic of originally, of do I have enough money? And instead designed an entire separate life and figured out whether it's sustainable. I will say that when you get to the point where you've reached your financial independence, you've resolved whether you're going to stay on active duty for the pension, go to the reserves or go total civilian. Once you've resolved all those questions, from there on out, the rest of your life, it's going to be a series of shorter term decisions. You're not going to move to your ideal location and live there for the rest of your life. You're not going to buy your forever home and raise your kids and their grandkids and great-grandchildren there. 
you're not going to do one thing for the next four or five decades after you're out of the military just because you've been moving around so much during the military. Instead, consider it a series of eh, five to 10 year periods, maybe three to five year periods, depending on what life throws your way and what your interests are. And just be willing to be flexible to life changes like that and be willing to renegotiate the terms. You know, one of you right now is probably running the finances and the other one of you is running some other aspect of, of your arrangements. And after you reach financial independence, maybe that'll change. And eventually you'll get to a point in your life where you'll decide you want to travel more now rather than save it for when you're in your 70s. And so you're going to have two different lifestyles there. And maybe one day one of you is going to want to stop running the finances just because you're tired of it. You feel like you've done enough of it. And you'll let the other negotiate the terms of what finances the two of you want to handle and how you want to split that up. The whole idea is to stay open to changing your lifestyle and renegotiating the terms under which you handle each part of that. And as long as you're aware that you can do that and change the rules every five to 10 years and change your lives, you'll stay flexible. That sounds uh, legit, especially the being able to stay flexible part seems a lot easier when you consider the fact that your whole military life has been three to five year tours. And this time you're just removing that unknown of the detailer telling you where the you're weird, going. The weird thing is that you're going to reach financial independence. You're going to stop this military thing and you're going to live your life and you're going to feel free. And two to three years from now, you're going to feel stressed out about something. It's not really going to be clear what it was, but after you left the military, two to three years later, you feel like there's something going on. And what you realize is internally, you're getting ready to transfer again. You know, you're looking around and thinking, boy, I got to get rid of some of this crap in a house. You're thinking, wow, I've got to make plans to move to a new location. Oh my gosh, so I'm going to get a new set of orders. No, you're not. But that's the lifestyle you've been accustomed to. And that's why after two to three years, you get ready to transfer again. Maybe you could go with that. Maybe you really will move to New Zealand and live there for two to three years. I know people who have done that just because they are accustomed to changing their location in the world every two to three years. The or difference maybe, being, of course, they get to choose this time instead of having it dictated to an extent. It's your choice. And of course, you've got to pay the money to make it happen. But at least you're doing it at your own discretion in the way that you want to do it instead of letting somebody else tell you how to do it. I never would have predicted when I landed on this island 31 years ago that I would want to spend the rest of my life here. So you may find that forever home. You may find that forever location. It's up to you. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's up to you, I think, is my favorite quote right now. <laughs> All these choices can actually be kind of stressful. You know, you've got this, uh, this issue where you've got too many choices. You're, you're in Costco trying to figure out what you really want, or Tesco, trying to figure out what you really want to buy, and there's just too many different options. So that, that can be a little stressful on all by itself. But I value the freedom, and I think people who are saving for financial independence are also valuing the freedom of choice there. I was just going to add in there quickly about the pension. I, I just had a question specifically for you going through this, and it's subjective. How much less do you think that you were sweating through the downturn due to coronavirus? And this is retrospective, obviously. We're now up on the upward side of it. I don't know if it will happen again, but it is higher than it was before for those who are into VT sacks. But how much less were you sweating, do you think, just because of having that inflation-adjusted annuity in the background? We've been watching our wealth compound for 18 years, and we went through the internet recession when I retired in 2002, and then we went through the Great Recession of 2008 to 2009, just as we were launching our daughter from the nest. So coronavirus financially has been undetectable as a financial event. 
you know, we probably saw a big drop in our personal capital net worth. Maybe I should have looked at that, but it never occurred to me to focus on it and obsess over it like it would have 10 years ago. I knew we had enough. And I knew that it was going to come back someday. And in the meantime, we didn't need to do anything with it and it wouldn't be a problem. Well, what we did do, we had already made one big charitable contribution in November of last year, bigger than usual. You know, it was, uh, it was uh, an attempt to expand our philanthropy and we're just experimenting with, you know, legacy planning and giving away money. And we had made a large donation to uh, the Hawaii Food Bank in November of last year, because that's something that is what we feel important for philanthropy. And then right in the middle of coronavirus in March, as this was escalating, and we looked at a 25% unemployment rate on the island of Oahu, the visitor industry pretty much went away. The visitors dropped 95% in one month. All of those issues, the food bank was just running out of funding immediately. And we made another large donation in the middle of all this financial distress to the food bank. And we had the ability to do that. We had the margin, we had the net worth, we had the excess wealth to do that. And along with that, uh, we also donated, we gifted our granddaughter and put money in her 529 account. And she's seven months old. And so we were able to do all these financial things. Coronavirus has been a financial non-event because we've also got some privilege involved in there, but we've also watched our wealth compound for all those years of, of being frugal and living a reasonable lifestyle and financial independence. Personally, though, uh, coronavirus has done two things. <clears throat> We've been accustomed to traveling for four or five months of the year, and that's gone away. Uh, it'll come back, I hope, someday, but it's gone away. But what it has really hit me in the feels on that is I can't just fly to California and visit my granddaughter. I didn't see that coming even two years ago, but it did. And so I miss that. And I'd like to do more of that. And the other impact of coronavirus has been to make you aware of possible pre-existing health conditions. And so I think back to all those submarine atmosphere control chemicals that I've inhaled over the years. I think back to all those years where I've had tuberculosis uh, symptoms or where I've had uh, bronchitis or even pneumonia. And maybe my pulmonary system is not as strong as I think it is. And when I compare that to all the stories I see of people going into the hospital and being unable to breathe because of the coronavirus, I get scared for my health. And so financially, finances of the, of the pandemic hasn't even made the top 10 of my concerns. It's all been lifestyle and family and longevity. That all makes sense. And um, what you said right there about the asbestos pre-existing conditions and things like that, actually... Remind me of another question I had. Um, are you familiar at all with the VA disability payment scheme? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm all too familiar. This is not a club you want to join, but I'm very familiar with it. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I don't plan on joining this club, but I've heard from other friends who have retired along the way that if you collect, if you end up with 100% disability or anything over 80% disability, that it starts chipping away into your military pension. Is that true? Is that bad gouge? How does that work? Let me, yeah, let me, let me separate fact from fiction there. When you get to the point where you're leaving the military, either leaving and becoming a civilian or transferring into the reserves or retiring, any of those three situations, same process. You're going to start with your retirement physical. And the retirement physical is not in your best interests. The retirement physical is in the military's interests to make sure that if they let you retire, that they don't inadvertently have you die the day after you retire from some undiscovered condition. 
So when the military gives you a retirement physical or a separation physical, they're making sure that there's nothing wrong with you that would kill you the day after you leave the military. They want to find the heart murmur. They want to find the leaky blood vessel. They want to find the lurking cancer symptoms that you didn't really think about. They want to find that during the separation physical. So that's their interests. Your interests are what kind of problems do I have to deal with for the rest of my life? And by that, I mean, you've had you know a problem with your knees and it's getting a little worse, but you know that if you start talking to people about your creaky knees, that you might be down checked from sea duty or you might lose your flight pay. You might even get to a medical or a physical evaluation board and be kicked out of the military. Uh, there's a joke about naval aviators that says that every naval aviator, the day after they leave aviation, they develop all these allergies. And it's because they've been hiding these symptoms for their entire lives. And so as you get to that point, the whole physical process is going to be combined. The separation physical or retirement physical is going to be combined with the VA disability screening process. The idea the hypothesis is that the day you leave the military is the day you start with your VA disability rating because they started six months early and got it finished by the time you left the military. And so you have to make sure that for now on, for the next seven years, make sure that every problem you have is documented in your medical record. And you have to be comfortable enough to discuss this with a medical professional who's probably going to let the chain of command know if there's anything significant going on. You're going to have to make that decision over whether it's okay to reveal those symptoms or have those conditions treated, knowing that they could not only limit your command's attitude towards your ability to support the command, but it might actually send you to a medical evaluation board or a physical evaluation board. And that can probably give you more details on how that feels than I do. And the whole issue is whether you want to potentially sacrifice your ability to go to retirement just because you've got this nagging physical or medical condition that you're not sure you want to talk about. So once you've left active duty, whether you're in the reserves or whether you're retired, the VA is going to do an assessment of your disability and they're going to award compensation. And the law right now says that you can't have dual compensation. So if your VA disability rating from the VA not the way you actually can perform, but the rating assigned by the VA, if it's less than 50%, then you give up some of your active duty pension for that VA disability compensation. So my pension right now, my military pension as a retired 04 is $3,800 a month. And I give up $475 of that every month in exchange for VA disability compensation of the exact same amount, $475 a month. So I've got the same amount of money in my pocket either way. However, the VA disability compensation is free of income tax. The military pension is taxed by the federal government and may also be taxed by your state and local governments. So everybody I know that's got a VA disability rating of less than 50% will happily give up their pension equivalent for that amount of VA disability compensation. And, and people worry about this when they go into the reserves, the military reserves or National Guard, because they're afraid to show up with a disability rating and still be doing a weekend a month and two weeks a year, but it's okay. I know many veterans who've left active duty with a 30% VA disability rating, 60%, 80%, even 100% VA disability rating, and still been allowed to serve in the reserves or the guard in a capacity that's not limited by their rating. In other words, they're doing stuff that they're capable of doing, even though they're considered disabled at some other aspect of their lifestyle. If you get through the VA disability screening process and you have a 50% or higher VA disability rating, then you're under a system called Concurrent Retirement and Disability Pay. It's a terrible name, but CRDP is the acronym. 
And what that means is you get both your pension and your VA disability compensation. So less than 50%, you are offset by the amount of compensation you get and you have some pension money. 50% or more, you get to keep both the VA disability compensation and the pension. I will tell you though, that when you look in the table of conditions that the VA has listed there for the various disability ratings. And when you look at what it takes to get a 50% or higher VA disability rating, again, you don't want to become a member of that club. The people I know that are in that club and generally involves a traumatic brain injury, maybe some significant post-traumatic stress symptoms or significant spinal and joint issues. And by that, I mean facing herniated discs and spinal fusion and very little cartilage, maybe even having to stare down a joint replacement someday. So take care of your health. Talk about that with your medical professional, even while you're on active duty, even if it might be career limiting, you don't want it to become life limiting just because you're trying to protect a cash stream in the future and get all that stuff documented in your record now and show that it needs continuing treatment like physical therapy, for example, and the VA disability compensation system will, will do the right thing and it'll take care of you and it'll, it'll all work out. I wouldn't feel any burden to work the system or try to leverage or play the game or do any of those things. I wouldn't try to exploit the VA disability compensation system. It's just the money you would get out of attempting that isn't worth it anyway. And the main thing to do is just keep documenting this all in your medical record. Okay, fair enough. Thank you. That uh, I was a little bit worried because I was like, well, what if they decide that you're rating is that high and now it cuts off your pension. But it sounds like the way that you phrased it, that if you're less than 30%, then it's basically just a tax benefit. Less than 50%. Yeah. Oh, 50%. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm, I'm, I'm at a VA disability rating of 30% and it's mostly because of knees and also tinnitus, but I can still surf just fine. Uh, and so you, <laughs> you get a little confused when you have the VA say, well, you're disabled at this. Well, it means that you're income potential is limited because of the cartilage you've lost in your knees over the years. So that, that, that disability word really causes more confusion than it resolves. But the military in this situation will make sure you get exactly the same amount of money. The compensation just reduces your taxes a little bit. If you faced a medical evaluation board or a physical evaluation board and they had to discharge you or medically retire you or physically retire you, again, you would be given whichever sum of money was higher based on your years of service and on the degree of the disability rating. Fair enough. Thanks very, for clearing yeah. that up. So very similar then. I think, you know. Thank you ever so much, Doug, for your time. And mostly, mostly the insight, because I feel once you've listened to many of the podcasts and you have a plan, you've discussed it as much as you, and because we're not with each other so much, we, we spend an awful lot of time on the phone talking about this. I feel like, we're getting into the very nitty gritty now with the actual figures, the money, uh, and we're just alternating some, some very small things in order to benefit us for later on. And actually, what we're more concerned about is the, is the how do you fight beyond the numbers, you know? And that's what interests us and, and hopefully more of the, certainly the military community a lot more, given that we're staring down potentially at a, a lifetime annuity that's inflation adjusted. It's, it's, we're not in the same kind of perhaps worry mode as, as other people. And that affords us the, I guess, privilege to be able to look more about certainly more, more of the holistic issues, you know, the mental health of fire, for example, um, yep. and the day to the day to day, you've already answered it, but what on earth do you do day to day? Seriously. 
I'll point out that in 18 years of cost of living adjustments, three of those years were zero because of the Great Recession. And yet in that 18 years, my pension has risen just over 40%. And, and not only that, but the consumer price index gives you the impression that it doesn't keep up with your actual spending, your actual expenses. The reality has been that our spending has remained relatively flat. It's gone up, but it hasn't gone up 40%. And of that amount that it's gone up, much of that has been discretionary. And so you take a great sense of security from that, that cost of living adjustment. And, and maybe there's a little bit of survivor guilt. Maybe there's a little bit of uh, feeling uh, privileged, uh, solving a problem that everybody else in the financial independence community worries about. Uh, but the reality is that you took all your risks and made all your sacrifices and did all that worrying up front. Uh, the part where you worried about, uh, is this going to injure me? Is this going to kill me? Uh, am I going to kill somebody else? Is there going to be a war? You've taken extraordinary risks to get to the financial position you are today. And you're entitled to reap those benefits for the rest of your life and feel like they're compensation for all the risks you took. The opinion I have is that the compensation is probably not enough for the uh, physical and mental risks, especially the damage that has occurred over the years. But take that compensation and don't feel guilty about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jeff, for your time. It's been really, really uh, insightful and helped a lot. And hopefully any sailors, airmen, soldiers who are watching this can take something away from it as well. I, I hope they will. Uh, the first thing they'll they'll decide is whether they want to marry for love or for money. They'll also decide whether and whether or not they really want to marry another sailor. <laughs> yeah, total tell. Meg's actually a really big advocate for um, passing on any of the information that we hear through the podcast and and, and any of the meetings that we have onto uh, her younger sailors. She joined as a, an E one on a very much lower base salary than than she is on now so she definitely knows the struggles but she i think you wish that you'd known what you know now about the importance of putting in money into your tsp making those contributions especially on brs or or whatever so she's putting out the message as much as possible on her (laughs) social media and i refer to uh my first 10 years of my enlistment as the lost decade because i just said it and forget it with my tsp and um my yep. first ship decommed after a year and a half, but my TSP address was set to that ship. So I could never get my PIN number and I just never bothered to try it. And so I left uh, it. And that was back when it automatically just sat in the Jeep. And at least now right. they don't do that anymore. Thank goodness for our sailors and Marines sake. But my money just sat there doing nothing for 10 years. And it wasn't until I was about to commission that I finally was like, oh, I should probably do something about this. And thank God I did. But now I'm just playing that catch-up game where I'm like putting basically the max amount of my TSP as, as much as I can. So like the first six months of every year, my whole paycheck is just going in there. <laughs> and I tell you, the, the time to save for financial independence, the best time to start saving for financial independence was 20 years ago. But the second best time is today. And it's, it's when you start and do it today and everything falls into place after that. You can't, you can't beat yourself up for all those years <laughs> of history, but you certainly have the experience and gosh, I hope somebody else listens to that experience. And Right. If we can stop even one yeah. E1, E2 from doing what I did and just yep. get your TSP in the right spot and get that max amount in there. Um, yep. If we can even just get them to do that, that'll be worth it. We call that lifetime employment for financial bloggers, I'm afraid.
Brad, I mean, you, you heard him mention this, the, the, the military inferiority complex. And then really, as they were diving through that, I'm, I'm, I've put all my time and I put the service in, what am I qualified for? Do I go back to college now and get a degree as I join civilian life? Yeah, that was fascinating to me as, as someone who is not in the military, obviously it never would have crossed my mind that people who have such hands-on experience, have so much knowledge and wisdom would have an inferiority complex. That frankly was shocking to me. And I love Doug's answer, which was people want to know what can you do and how can you help them? Not what school did you go to? Not what degree do you have, but how can you help me, right? What can you do on this job? And I think it's about, like Doug said, it's about having that abundance mindset when you're looking for that next career, if you even want to find the next career, right? But like the abundance mindset, and I would even reframe that as just have confidence. You know, obviously we're talking to three military officers there, but if you were enlisted and you might have that inferiority complex, oh, I don't have a college degree, whatever, you have real world experience. I mean, that vastly, vastly outweighs most college degrees. I mean, if you, Jonathan, you're an employer, right? Like if someone came to you with 10, 15, 20 years of military experience, I mean, that blows it out of the water versus somebody having just some run-of-the-mill college degree. But what I would say, and Doug said this as well, me, that, if that individual came to me, I am looking for skills, right? And so you got to get it off the degree. The degree is barely a qualifier for anybody, much less for someone who has all the experience. You already have all the experience. What are the skills? So Doug pointed rightfully so to licenses. Now they're, you know, Matt and Megan are in this interesting situation where they're also looking for location independence or at least the ability to maintain work regardless of where one partner or the other has to be located. That's a big part of them. And, and I just, the natural thought to me came as I was listening that right now with what we're talking about, and we'll give a very specific example as a, an example that could cover a lot more options, the Salesforce challenge that we're talking about all the time on Talent Stacker and Choose FI right now. Like if you would like to make 60 to $80,000 a year with a clear path to making more than $100,000 a year and parallel to that, you would like the ability to work remote, location independence. Salesforce just announced that the people that are actually working directly for Salesforce all are remote work. It's all remote work now. That was an announcement they just made within the last week. And that is being mirrored in the corporate world as well. Very typically, the jobs that are being offered right now are remote work. So if you're interested in that, you can check it out. We put together just a free five-day program to tell you more about it and how you would get started if you wanted to do it on your own. You can just go to chooseify.com slash Salesforce, chooseify.com slash Salesforce for more information on that one example of many, but it points to the future being all about skills, licenses, certifications, and you know, that's for anybody, but certainly for someone that has uh, the military background that this couple expressed. Yeah. And like you were talking about flexibility, right? That's one of the beautiful things of, of having options of being at FI, of having a pension. They talked about, about travel about where they want to live, about how Doug can live in Hawaii, right? An ultra high cost of living area. And, you know, it's so interesting. It's almost akin to, to slow travel or things that we've heard even from someone like Liz from Frugal Woods talking about when you live in a city and most people reflexively say, oh, it's so expensive, right? It's so expensive to live in a city, but yet there are so many free things, right? It's the same, like Doug is talking about living in Hawaii. Sure. In theory, the housing costs are expensive, but he's able to find incredible local ways to save money on virtually everything else. And like he said, in their particular case, and I suspect a lot of people would do this, is 
especially in the Phi community, as he said, they bought crappy houses, quote unquote, that they could live in and put sweat equity into to make it nice, right? You have time. You, you talk about learning. You talk about skills. Go on YouTube and learn how to fix something. Like, I mean, that's something that appeals to me. I don't have, currently don't have any uh, discernible skills when it comes to, to fixing things, but I have a mindset that I can learn. And I think, you know, in, in, all, in all candor, that's different than where I was four years ago when we started this podcast. I think I would have had this limiting belief that, oh, I'm not handy or I'm not whatever, you know, fill in the blank. But with YouTube and a little bit of uh, sweat equity, a little bit of hard work, you can learn anything, right? I, I find that super empowering. I still feel like I'm going to get left with parts when I try to crack open the dryer or the, uh, or the, or the refrigerator <laughs> or whatever. But, but I'm with you, man. And YouTube is truly a miracle. Okay. The last thing I just wanted to point out here, and this is again, a reference to really where Doug's work has actually gone recently, but you saw that the conversation naturally go here. As soon as you figured out the money for yourself and you have the confidence that, you know, we're going to be okay, but I want my kids to have this knowledge sooner. I want the next generation not to give them a silver spoon, but to not have them have to fight so hard to find true, accurate information on a replicable path to build wealth. I want to see them do the work but I want to see them go about it the right way and without all the dead ends that I ran into. And with that in mind, the conversation naturally goes to raising your money savvy family for next generation financial independence. And that is why Doug and his daughter, Carol put this together. It is this look from both sides, you know, the, the, the parental child relationship when it comes to learning about money and it's complicated, but it doesn't have to be as complicated. If you can kind of build these blocks slowly as the child progresses and I think that's what they did remarkably. I think it's what they conveyed remarkably. And I highly recommend for anybody that wants their, their children to get access to these money lessons at an earlier age, you pick up a copy of this book for yourself. Um, we were so excited to partner with Doug and his daughter, Carol, to bring this to the larger community. And uh, you can find out more information. Just go to chooseify.com slash book, pick up your copy today. All right, my friends, with that, give us some feedback. Give Doug your feedback. The man has invested himself entirely into the financial independence community and the personal finance community. He's very selfless with his time and he has an open offer for individuals. If you're in Oahu, uh, just give him a ring and get some surfing lessons. So uh, <laughs> he says the volume has ticked up since I've started throwing that out there a nice. little bit. So uh, maybe give him a little bit of heads up. Anyways, the fire is ready, my friends. We'll see you next time as we continue to go down the road less traveled.